Good morning. Peace be with you. I am Paul Ramsey. I'm one of the leaders here, uh, like Nathaniel said. It's, it's a joy to be with you this morning. It's an honor to be standing in front of you, preaching the word, uh, opening the scriptures together to see what God might say to us uh, by his spirit as we are gathered in his name. And so it's a joy to be with you. I want to also echo what Nathaniel said just a moment ago. If this is your first time with us, uh, uh, whether you are a Christian or not, uh, we are so glad that you're here. We want you to feel welcome. Um, even if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that you are welcome with your doubts, your questions, your problems. We, we look forward to hearing your story uh, and sharing a little bit of our story with you. We're so glad that our paths have intersected uh, in this moment in time this morning. And so we're glad that you're here. Well, welcome. Uh, I know I speak for every covenant member of Sojourn uh, that we're glad that you're, you're with us. If you would, open your Bibles, uh, your apps, or your Google searches with me to Mark chapter 1. Today we're beginning a three-week series in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is a series uh, very aptly called Parables of the Kingdom. Uh, And today we're going to be in the first parable in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, as it's often called. We're going to start our time, though, at the beginning of the book of Mark, chapter 1. So have your Bible open to there for right now. Uh, as I begin, let me tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from. I've heard that uh, many psychologists and social scientists uh, uh, agree that a person's worldview is pretty well solidified by the, the age of seven. Uh, many think it's even earlier than that. I grew up in a non-Christian family, a uh, totally non-religious family. We grew up making jokes about religious people and religion over the dinner table. Uh, my dad is a doctor. We were very scientific. Both of my parents were very smart. Um, uh, But we had a very materialistic worldview. That is, if you can see it and touch it, then it's real. If you can't see it and you can't touch it, you can't study it, then it's not. Um, And when God saved me in college, uh, in the middle of a physics degree, no less, uh, I began digging into scripture. And over the years since then, uh, I've, and especially in recent years, as I've been studying the Bible, as I've been preparing to preach God's word and minister to God's people, I have been continuing to learn and kind of realize and re-realize over time just how formative that first childhood worldview continues to be for me uh, in my experience. Regularly, I find myself corrected both by scripture and by my own life experience uh, uh, in my understanding of the world uh, and how it works. To give just one example, uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I have two daughters. Tallulah is three and Harper is one. A few weeks ago, as I was putting Tallulah to bed, she pointed to the shadow in between her dresser and the wall and said, Daddy, I don't like that shadow. It wasn't the first time she has talked about this particular shadow. And so I did what probably any rational, caring parent would have done in that moment. I said, Tallulah, I'm sorry you don't like that shadow, but don't worry, there's nothing there. I walked over, looked at the shadow, and I didn't see anything. And I looked back at her and said, see, there's nothing there. Even though I could tell that she wasn't completely appeased Uh, by my explanation. Uh, She eventually laid down and I walked out and she fell asleep. It wasn't until just this past week as I was gearing up to preach on this parable that I was sitting in a session as a church planting resident uh, with several other church planters with a pastor talking to us about spiritual warfare and he gave an example nearly identical to uh, to what I had experienced with Tallulah a few weeks ago. It was about a kid who says to his dad that he saw something in a shadow and says, Daddy, what is that? And as this pastor began talking about the reality of spiritual warfare and the fact that children are often much more spiritually aware than adults, the Holy Spirit gripped me. I was struck 
with how readily I had just reverted to my lifelong understanding that if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. And so I just dismissed Tallulah's concern uh, about the shadow as being a kid afraid of the dark and not really understanding how shadows work. I didn't even think twice about it. And see, it could very well have been that Tallulah was just afraid of the dark because she doesn't know what makes shadows. And even if she had made it clear, though, um, as clear as a three-year-old can make it, that there might have been a dark spiritual presence there, all we would have done is calmly say a quick prayer together, like, in the name of Jesus, please leave this room, and then prayed for Jesus to protect her and give her a good night's sleep. But the thing is, I didn't even consider for a moment until weeks later that there was a possibility that there was a spiritual answer for Tulu's fear of this shadow. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to make the point that there are demons in every shadow. I'm not trying to, to, to make the point that every time a kid is afraid of the dark, we should mobilize the exorcists, all right? I'm simply trying to show you that God has been teaching me a lot lately about this incredibly important aspect of reality, the spiritual world that we can't see or touch, but, is, but which is every bit as real and impactful on our lives as the world that we can see and touch. And you see, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. So many of us live as though we're not at war, live kind of totally ignorant of Satan's schemes, and we wonder why our lives are so unfruitful and so frustratingly difficult for seemingly no reason. Let me put it this way. Have you, have you ever heard the phrase, you shouldn't bring a knife to a gunfight? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians about his efforts to combat the enemy, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he said he, he makes great effort in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. For the Apostle Paul, and for most uh, of the other human authors of the Bible, there is a spiritual war that is going on that is simply assumed. The problem is that if we don't understand this, we will miss the forest for the trees. We will be bringing a knife to a gunfight, or probably more likely, we'll be showing up to a gunfight thinking that we're just meeting up with friends for lunch totally unarmed, and we will miss what is, I think, the central thrust of what Jesus is doing in this parable. And so before you jump back to Mark 4 and try to figure out what I'm talking about, stick with me for just a moment. I want us to look at a few things that will help us understand what Jesus is doing and what he is, I think, revealing to us about what he calls in verse 11 of our text, the kingdom of God. And so let me tell you where we're going this morning. First, we're going to look at two different kingdoms. Second, we're going to look at this parable of the, the sower at four different soils, and then we're going to close with some implications of what Jesus says. And so let's dig in. First, let's look at two different kingdoms. Before we get to the parable of the sower, I want to look at these three other things from Jesus' ministry that lay a helpful foundation for us. We're going to look at how Jesus starts his ministry. We're going to look at a story Jesus tells and a prayer that Jesus prays here in this first part. So first, let's look at how Jesus starts his ministry. Look with me at Mark chapter 1. Uh, in Mark 1, Jesus begins his ministry in verse 14. Right after John the Baptist was arrested, it says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So right there, in Jesus' first words, as he announces the beginning of his ministry, there are three parts to what Jesus says. One, he says, the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Two, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? And third, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. 
if you're in here and you're familiar with the story of Jesus, then you're probably at least somewhat comfortable with what Jesus says in that third thing, repent and believe in the gospel. Unless for you, the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the grave because he hasn't done that yet here. And now don't mishear me. That's definitely at the heart of the gospel story. Right, but, but Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen from the grave yet. And so what is this gospel, this good news that Jesus is talking about right here in Mark chapter one? Let's not jump ahead to what we know happens at the end of the book. Right here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, I think he's doing something important. He's announcing something really important. Another way of translating repent and believe in the gospel is simply turn and believe in this good news. And the way that Jesus says it makes it sound like the good news itself is what he says in those first two parts. The good news is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. So what does this mean? Let me read on for a moment. Uh, can still in Mark chapter one, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. And then what happens just after this? What is the very next thing that Jesus does? The first thing he does is he calls his first disciples. He goes up to these fishermen, verse 16, Simon and Andrew, and he calls them, verse 17, saying this. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So Jesus, this new king, announcing the arrival of his kingdom, begins by building his army. It's like he's gathering the Avengers. And I know it's been a couple of weeks. There's the Avengers reference for this morning. But really, these few who the world wouldn't have seen as people who had changed the world, Jesus approaches seeing something in them that the world doesn't see and says, come and follow me. And then right after this, we come to the first miracle that Jesus performs. Jesus takes his disciples into a synagogue in Capernaum. And while he is teaching there, this demon manifests. It says there's a man with an unclean spirit who cries out in verse 24 of chapter one. This, this, this unclean spirit says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus rebukes the demon and casts him out. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs in the gospel of Mark. So what I want us to see here is that Mark is painting a picture very deliberately for us. Here comes this new king, right, who announces his kingdom. He starts building his army and then he shows what kind of battle he is assembling this army to fight. It's clear here that Jesus is not recruiting just preachers, but spiritual warriors, as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, the battle that we wage is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And do you notice the question that the demons ask there in Mark chapter one? They ask him, what have you to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? It's an interesting question. You see, the demons, it would seem, are not surprised to see Jesus. They're terrified of Jesus, but they're not surprised. They know exactly what he's there to do. Right? They knew this day would one day come and they knew what this Jesus was coming to do. What have you to do with us, Jesus? Are you here to destroy us? Is this the day that we've been waiting for? And so that, that's how Jesus starts his ministry. There's a lot more there, of course, but let's move on. That's how he starts his ministry. Let's look next at a story Jesus tells. You're welcome to turn if you want, but I'll read this. It'll be on the slide as well. Listen to Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. What had happened in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out 72 of his disciples, giving them the authority to heal and to cast out demons in his name. And they had done this successfully in many towns and villages, and they were coming back to report to Jesus their success. Here's what they say. Verse 17, Luke chapter 10. 
the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 18, and Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So there's a lot there, but here's what I wanna point out for right now. In verse 18, Jesus tells this eight word story, nine words in the Greek, to situate the disciples properly in the context of what's going on. Jesus says to them, they're, they're all excited about their power. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The disciples have come back rejoicing in the power that Jesus has given them over the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus sees something that's very familiar to him. He immediately rebukes them, warning them. He says, essentially, he says, Satan himself was once an angel in the kingdom of heaven who rejoiced in the power that he had. But he fell in love with that power so much that he rebelled against God who cast him out of heaven and down to earth, which split the kingdom of heaven in two in a fall that ultimately led to the fall of humanity and a battle that has been raging ever since. The battle that Jesus came to fight once and for all. So when Jesus sees his disciples rejoicing in comparing their power with this power of the kingdom of Satan and his host, he corrects them saying, beware. Don't for a moment find your joy in the power that you have. Find your joy that your name is written in the kingdom of heaven in the book of life. So what we see in these few verses are one of Jesus's clear teachings on the reality that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of darkness, which is the kingdom of the enemy, Satan. There was once one kingdom, and ever since that kingdom was split by Satan's rebellion, the war between the kingdom of heaven under God and the kingdom of the world under Satan, the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, as we read in Ephesians chapter two, this war has been raging ever since. And it's important to note here that there for Jesus are two and only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of righteousness and the kingdom of unrighteousness, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. Every action that is done in this world is serving and worshiping either the one or the other. There's no third way. There's no spiritually neutral activity. This is why the apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. This is also why God hates sin so much. Not only are you not loving and worshiping God when you sin, but you are actively handing yourself over to Satan, giving him glory and giving him territory in your life and surroundings, which robs God of the glory that's due his name. So when Jesus tells his disciples the story, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's catching them up with what's been going on. This battle is not ultimately about you and me having authority over the power of the enemy. It's about the God of the universe winning back his lost territory and his lost sheep for the glory due his name. It's about his glory, not ours. And it's a, it's a war that Jesus came to fight and win for himself, the king for his own kingdom that God might get all the glory. The third thing, briefly, we've looked at the way Jesus starts his ministry, the story Jesus tells, and the third thing, briefly, let's look at a prayer that Jesus prays. Think with me briefly about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so forth. This prayer is straight from scripture. 
Uh, it's the words that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples recorded in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 to teach them how to pray. Let me read what it says. Listen, with, your ki- with the two kingdoms in mind, listen to the Lord's prayer. This is Matthew 6. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, yours, God, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice some of the things that Jesus tells his disciples to pray for. Based on what we've talked about thus far, the first half of this prayer is unmistakably a battle cry for the kingdom of God. Right? Father in heaven, your name is hallowed, is holy. There is no other name that is, no other kingdom worthy of the exaltation that is due your name. That's what Jesus says that we should pray. Every time this prayer is prayed, it is a dagger to the heart of Satan, this glory-hungry fallen angel. No, not you, Satan. God's name, God's kingdom alone. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is Jesus telling us to pray for? Whose kingdom is currently operating in this world? Satan's. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray for this kingdom of darkness to be pushed back and replaced with the kingdom of heaven as God works through his people. God's people are to press on in prayer, pushing back the darkness of the enemy, pushing back the territory of the dominion of Satan and expanding the kingdom of God. See, this whole first half of the Lord's prayer is a battle cry, a kingdom of heaven expanding prayer. And I'll stop there in the interest of time, but let's think for a moment about the picture that Jesus has painted for us thus far. He arrives on the scene as this king of a new kingdom that has arrived. He recruits, he builds this team, demonstrating for them the kind of power he came to exercise over the kingdom of darkness and then sends them out in that power that they might see victory over the darkness too. And he teaches them to pray, showing them that their prayers ought to be characterized by and directed towards the battle that is really being waged, that of the kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of this world. God and his host against Satan and his host. And with that, turn with me now to Mark chapter four. We're gonna spend the bulk of the rest of our time in Mark chapter four, verses one through 10. It's the text that Nathaniel read. And while I don't wanna overstate my case in this first point, I don't wanna understand it either or excuse me, I don't want to understate it either. The reason I wanted to take the time to look at, 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 the, at that, the idea of two kingdoms, is because I believe we're at a point in time, at a point in our culture, where we're accustomed to skimming over spiritual language. If we don't understand that there are two kingdoms at war, that that is the battle that Jesus came to fight and to lead his people into, then we will miss the significance, not just of the parable of the sower, but really of the entire Bible. We will miss the point of this parable thinking it's just about you making sure you don't miss the seed that's planted in the soil of your heart. While it's certainly something about that, it's about so much more. It's about the kingdom of God breaking into this world and the nature of the battle that's being waged even today. In fact, that's what Jesus tells us he's talking about in these parables. (laughs) Verse 10, when they ask him about the parables, what does Jesus answer? Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him, I'm telling you about the kingdom. And so with that said, let's move on to the second thing that we want to talk about this morning. Let's look at the four soils. 
Read with me, Mark chapter four, starting in verse one. Again, he, so this is Jesus. Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. Imagine this picture of Jesus with this crowd. Too many people, so he comes out so that his voice can, 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 uh, can pass over the water and, and be heard by everyone. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, pause for a moment. So picture this scene. Jesus is teaching this primary, perhaps his primary concern in his ministry is to teach about the kingdom through word and deed, revealing to the world that he is the one sent from God in the fullness of time as the culmination of this battle that has been waged ever since the Garden of Eden. And the first thing Jesus says to his hearers is, listen. He says, listen. He wants them to listen intently and thoughtfully because what follows will be rich in meaning. Here's what he says, verse three. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stop there. We're gonna tackle this text in two chunks. Uh, the passage for today, we're gonna look at the parable itself here and then we're gonna look at Jesus's explanation of the parable, which comes in verses 13 through 20. So let's look at what Jesus is saying here, the parable itself. There's three main things in this parable. Right, there's a sower, there's seeds, and there's soil. Right? And if you notice, there's only one thing that changes throughout this parable. The sower is the same sower. The seeds are the same. The one thing that changes throughout this parable that determines what happens to the seeds is the soil. This really could be called the parable of the soils in some Bibles that the headline is the parable of the soils. But nevertheless, a sower goes out scattering his seed, which falls on four different soils. A path, which is hard soil, rocky soil, soil that's overgrown with thorns, and good soil. And the nature of that soil determines the yield that comes from that seed. In one, the seed doesn't even have time to sprout because the soil is too hard to let it drop in and take root. In the second and third, the seed sprouts, but something happens that renders that seed fruitless. In the second, it dies. And in the third, it survives, but is kept from bearing fruit. Only in the fourth, the good soil, does the seed not, be, or does the seed not only sprout, but bear fruit growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, as it says in verse eight. So what would have been going on in the minds of Jesus' hearers? To our ears, this might sound like a bad sower, a wasteful farmer. Right? What's, what is Jesus, or excuse me, not Jesus, what is this sower doing, wasting all of this seed, throwing it on the path, throwing it on the rocks, among thorns, only a little bit, it seems, is landing on this good soil. What's he doing? For a long time, I, so I've read this parable before, you may have as well. For a long time, I pictured a sower going to four different areas and trying each of them out. Right, he tries the path first. Nope, that didn't work. And then he tries this, how about rocky soil? Nope, that didn't work. Okay, shoot, I'll go over here. Thorns, ah, nope, doesn't work. Oh, look, good soil. Let's try that. Who, wouldn't you know it? It worked. That's how I pictured it. That's, that's how I, maybe just me. Um, but that's not what's happening in this parable. The sower is doing what sowers in the ancient Near East knew they needed to do. They're farming in dry, rocky desert. 
They know that not all of the seed that they sow is going to sprout and bear fruit. And so the sower needs to sow liberally, knowing that some is not gonna survive, but some will hopefully find good soil and sprout and bear grain. And so to them, to Jesus' original hearers, this wouldn't have sounded unwise. This actually sounds like good farming. The sower is doing what needs to be done. What would have caught their ear though, what would have caught their ear was the amount of fruit that the fruitful seed would bear. It was normal in this day for seeds to bear a six to seven fold yield, maybe 10 to 12 on a particularly good harvest year. But Jesus here says that these seeds bear 30, 60, or 100 fold. So this is a super abundant harvest. Miraculous, borderline miraculous in its yield. And, and perhaps one reason that would have caught their ear especially was that up until this point, Jesus' emphasis has been on the struggle that so many seeds face. Right? The, the struggle it is to farm and the things that are working against the farmer at all times. This would have resonated with Jesus' hearers. And the for that reason, the gardening, this farming imagery is perfect to get the point across. It's always a battle, he's saying. There's always a battle. As a farmer, if you let your guard down for even one moment, weeds will grow up and threaten to choke out your crops. If you stop tending your soil, it will harden and become inhospitable to seed and so on. It's a constant battle that anyone who tends a garden or even anyone who mows a lawn here in Houston is, is probably at least a little bit familiar with. And in the middle of this battle, Jesus ends the parable by saying, nevertheless, even though much seed will be unfruitful, the good soil will bear fruit in extraordinary abundance. So what's Jesus doing? When his disciples question him concerning the parables, he tells them what he's talking about, like I mentioned. Verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Jesus has been revealing the truth of his kingdom through parables like this one. Right, stories meant to provoke thought, intended also to evoke a response in his hearers. And Jesus' clear intention is to reveal truth about the kingdom of God, things that had been hidden until his arrival. Now, you see, with Jesus, the God-man, God-made man, ministering to the world, the kingdom of heaven is truly near. It's right in front of them. And Jesus is explaining about how it works. He knows that much like the subject of the parable, though, not all who hear what he says will truly hear and understand. But nevertheless, he presses on. And as he goes on to explain, we'll see that he's explaining the real, he's using this parable to explain the real battle that I mentioned before that is taking place as the kingdom of heaven expands despite opposition from the kingdom of this world. So let's look at how he interprets this parable. Look at verse 13. Excuse me. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Jesus says, listen, you have got to know that this is about the kingdom of God. If you miss that this is about the kingdom of God, then you will miss this and the point of all of the other parables. It's all about the kingdom of God. I'm telling you how it works. It goes on verse 14. The sower sows the word and then he explains what each one of the different types of soil is meant to indicate. And before I dig into what he interprets or what, what he interprets for them, Jesus introduces us and his hearers to this threefold front against which we fight, which is a triad you might be familiar with the world, the flesh, and the devil. As the kingdom of heaven pushes forward, there are three main things warring for the souls of every human being, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is the kingdom of darkness in a nutshell. Let me spend a few minutes briefly unpacking each of these. Jesus starts with the devil. Look at verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes the way, away the word that is sown in them. 
Right, so Jesus doesn't leave room for non-spiritual interpretation despite how we might want to. He says to his disciples, the seeds that fall on the path and are eaten up by the birds, that's Satan. That's what Satan does. There's two things to note here that Satan does. First, the soil is hardened. And second, the word is snatched up. Both of these are things that Satan does. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, verses three and four. The apostle Paul writes this. He says, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do you hear what the apostle Paul said there? He said that the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers, hardening their hearts in such a way that when they do hear the true gospel, it just bounces right off. They'll go in one ear and out the other so that they miss it. It makes me think of someone reading a political cartoon and seeing just a pretty picture, missing the point entirely. Because of the hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness that Satan has trapped them in, even the truth of the gospel will bounce right off of unbelievers. The truth will be lost on the hear, and Satan is waiting. Secondly, he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, as we read in 1 Peter 5, ready to snatch up the seed of the gospel, lest it linger too long and have the chance to actually take root. So right off the bat, Jesus is telling us something. He's saying, you must know that there is more going on here than people simply choosing whether or not to believe in the gospel. There is a dominion into which we are born, a kingdom governed by a real and powerful adversary who is working day and night to thwart the purposes of God in his kingdom. To give one application of this, going back to something I mentioned earlier, this is one of the reasons God hates sin so much. Not only does sin wrong God, but sin gives Satan territory in your life and in your heart. As Romans 6, verses 12 through 14 say, when we sin, we present ourselves as instruments to unrighteousness. In other words, we are instruments in Satan's hands to be used for his purposes, rather than instruments in God's hands to be used for God's purposes. One of the ways that Satan works to harden our hearts is through our own sin. Justifying sin as not that big of a deal. Using the nobody's perfect excuse. Or even being convinced that some part of scripture doesn't, just doesn't apply anymore. Satan knows that if he can get us to give ourselves to sin, then our hearts will be hardened and will not be able to truly hear and respond to the gospel. Whether it's external actions or our internal thought lives, something out there that we do in public or something in here that we do in secret, if we are living in unrepentant or undealt with sin, there is a part of you that is still in allegiance to Satan in the dominion of darkness with Satan at the helm who will keep you from bearing gospel fruit. As Cody shared with us in his testimony last week, God doesn't ask for most of us. He demands all of us. Every square inch of territory in our hearts is to be given over to God, brought into the light. And Satan will do whatever he can to keep us, even seemingly tiny parts of ourselves in the dark, because he knows that if he can get even a small piece, he's just one step away from getting the whole thing. Jesus says, know that Satan is there. He's a real adversary. He's a real danger. From the devil, Jesus moves on to the flesh. Look at verse 16. It says this, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. 
Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This is what Jesus is saying here. The flesh wants above all else, comfort, satisfaction, and pleasure. And oftentimes, at least initially, the gospel can seem to offer all three of those things. And so we jump in wholeheartedly. What you receive in Christianity might be awesome at first. You find the community you've been looking for. You find the favor in other people's eyes that you've been waiting for. Your internal self-talk feels a lot better than it used to. Your life starts to feel like it truly has meaning and purpose. But inevitably, tribulation or persecution of some sort will come. Which we're told throughout the Bible will happen to us if we are indeed following in Jesus' footsteps. And when that happens, the flesh will be like, hang on, this isn't what I signed up for. And the temptation will be to hit the eject button. The flesh will be tempted to look straight to other things, often to the very same things that the flesh sought before here in the gospel, whether it be anger, money, sex, drugs, relationships, you name it. And you'll experience something of a relapse back into your old ways, wondering why you got there. What this reveals is that your relationship with God through the gospel wasn't ultimately one of trust, but one of consumption. And this is rocky soil. Satan is, of course, active in this realm too. God is holding out on you. He'll whisper to your flesh, tempting tempting you to find satisfaction for your flesh elsewhere. Finally, after the devil and the flesh, Jesus moves on to the world. Look at verse 18. It says this, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, excuse me, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So in this soil, which we have every indication is actually reasonably good soil, we see that the seed has been able to take root and grow a little bit, but the cares of this world, these thorns have choked it out. So this seed is actually, it's still alive. It's just not bearing any fruit. It's not yielding any grain. This one is particularly difficult because the cares of this world can be good things. This can be your marriage. The apostle Paul writes of marriage as worldly problems in 1 Corinthians chapter eight. Could be your marriage, could be your children, could be your work, could be your money, the influence that you have that you can certainly use for good and for the glory of God But similar to Jesus' warning that his disciples not find their joy in the power that he's given them over the forces of spiritual darkness, which is a good thing, his warning here is to not be deceived by riches or by the cares of this world into thinking that in them you will find joy. Because as long as as your joy is in the kingdom of this world, that will keep you from being fruitful in the kingdom of heaven. And listen, this is not, once again, this is not talking about sin, this third one. This is not talking about sinful engagement with the world, about illicit behavior that is inappropriate in any situation. This is talking about engagement with things in the world that can be used for good, relationships, money, work, so forth. But being deceived, Jesus uses a strong word there, deceived into finding your joy, satisfaction, and even identity in those things rather than in the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, look at the devil the flesh, and the world. Using these three soils, Jesus gives us a picture of the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of darkness as a way of warning his hearers, of warning you and me 
of what the enemy and his host will use to try to prevent us from hearing, from truly hearing the word of God and bearing fruit. And here's the thing. One of these three soils might be speaking louder than the others to you right now. It could be the seed along the path that Satan snatches up. Maybe you have given Satan dominion in your life for something. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, given yourselves over to sin, which will prevent you, Jesus says, from hearing, and taking, hearing the word of truth and allowing it to take root. It could be for you the seed on rocky ground that your experience of Christianity hasn't turned out the way you thought it would. And you're now, even today, being tempted in the flesh to find satisfaction, comfort, safety, pleasure in places other than Christ and his kingdom. Just in case you say, God doesn't pull through on his promises. It could be the seed among thorns that your money, that your jobs, that your relationships, no matter how good and promising they might be, are choking out the fruit that God wants to bear in your life. I want to say two things here. One, I would consider it a grace in this moment that God is revealing this to you. Bring it to the light. Lean into your brothers and sisters in your neighborhood parish and confess sin when, when necessary. Join a neighborhood parish if you haven't joined one yet so that with, together with trusted brothers and sisters, we can stand shoulder to shoulder against the schemes of the enemy and how he's trying to encroach into our lives. Bring what is currently in the darkness into the light so that all might be brought out into the open and lived in the open, which is where God's grace and mercy flow freely. So consider it a grace. The second thing I wanna say is this. Know that each of these three things is a danger for every person in this room at all times. It's not that some of us are the one kind of soil. Some of us struggle with the other kind of soil. Each of these three things are real dangers for every single human being in the world at all times. Satan, the flesh, and the world are real dangers. Not one of us is immune to even one of those three things at any point. Jesus says this parable, this whole parable, to all of his hearers. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see these things, these three things referred to time and again as real dangers for Christians and non-Christians alike. This is a battle that is real for each of us and will not end until Jesus' return. So let's be wise in keeping with these words that Christ has given us. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. In verse 20, he finishes with the good soil, giving us a window into the way he intends to bear fruit in our lives. He says this, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So what's Jesus saying here? The seeds that fall on the good soil are like the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit in abundance. So the answer to, to this battle against the kingdom of darkness is hear and accept God's word and watch as it bears fruit in our lives. But let me make, I think, an important correction. It'd be easy to misunderstand this whole parable as telling us to be good people to till the soil of our hearts, making our hearts into good soil that are ready for the seed of the gospel to be planted and take root. And if we don't do a good enough job doing this, then we're gonna miss the gospel. It could be possible to try to understand this parable that way. But I don't think that's what Jesus is telling us. I don't think Jesus is telling us to fix the soil of our hearts. What he's doing is he's warning us of threats that will come uh, over the course of our lives of discipleship. 
here's what I mean. Let me, let me put it this way. Think back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What does he do right after announcing the arrival of his kingdom? Remember what he does? He goes to recruit the first disciples. And what does he say there? Does he say, follow me, for I see that you are ready in your hearts to become fishers of men. That's not what he says. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me, and I will till the soil of your hearts, plant seeds, and and cause them to grow. Jesus' disciples were not living their lives leading up to this moment, preparing their hearts to receive the seed of the gospel in that moment. There's nothing that they did to earn the grace of Jesus in calling them to come and follow him. They didn't present themselves to Jesus as ready and willing, good heart soil people, ready for the seed of the gospel. No, Jesus set his eyes, his love on them and called them to himself. And here, later on in the same story, Jesus is telling this parable to these same disciples who he had invited by his grace to follow him in order that they might be wise in understanding the struggles and suffering that they will face as they seek to continue following Jesus throughout the course of their lives and as they lead others to do likewise. See, this parable is not primarily about good works to make good soil. While there are things that we can act in faithfulness, things that we can do in faithfulness to pursue gospel fruit in our lives, this parable is not saying be good so that you can be good soil for, this, for the gospel. This parable is about trusting in a greater power than the power of this world. This parable is about trusting in one who, when he calls, can make that call effective, till the soil of our hearts in that call and draw us to follow him and watch over the course of our life of discipleship as he makes us into fishers of men. Jesus develops leaders There's a lot of organizations that have leadership development crises, right? When really it's a problem, it's a leadership identification crisis. It's an organization that doesn't raise up leaders. You just wait for leaders to come and then you just name them. Okay, you're a leader, you're a leader, but there's no actual leadership development. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't look around and just wait and say, okay, who's gonna show themselves worthy of my leadership, of leading in my kingdom? He chooses, he raises up, he equips, he builds up, he makes fishers of men. As I move to close, let me cut, cut to the chase. Jesus tells this parable to reveal things to his people about his kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is one that is pushing back the forces of darkness, pressing onward to the ultimate victory of good over evil, of light over darkness, of righteousness over unrighteousness, of God over Satan. And the only way to spiritual victory, to finding oneself on the winning side rather than the losing side, is hearing Christ's call and following him. Jumping in with Christ by faith, not knowing the way to the destination, not knowing the means by which the journey will be fulfilled, but simply trusting in Christ that he will walk with us as we put one foot after another, seeking to live all of lives in obedience to his call in our lives. That way, we might be shaped, as the apostle Paul wrote, by faith and not by sight. You see, our eyes will deceive us as they see things in this world which is why the word is so important. What's the, the first word that Jesus says in this parable? He says, listen. Verse nine, what does he say? Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our eyes will deceive us. So Jesus invites us by faith to receive the word, the word, the word of truth and follow him.
we must not have an imbalanced understanding of the spiritual realm, the fleshly realm, or the worldly realm. Instead, we should have a life fully devoted to Christ who addresses each of those three things in perfect balance. Jesus came into this world to show his power over it. He took on flesh to be the first fruit of a newly created humanity and he repeatedly demonstrated his power over Satan, revealing his authority and the surety of his ultimate victory. Brothers and sisters, the answer to the battle that we face, the way to victory in this battle between these two kingdoms that has been raging ever since the fall of Satan from heaven. The answer is God in his mercy, opening our eyes and ears, tilling the soil of our hearts and and inviting us to follow him as those who are wary of the dangers of this world, but fully confident that he will hold us fast as we travel along the way with him. And as we go, do not be discouraged. You will face real rejection like Jesus did. If you're faithful to the call of discipleship, you will cast seed upon ground that does not sprout. And you will be opposed by a very real and present enemy. But listen, this is what you were made for. This is what God placed you and me in this world for. This is what he placed us here to do, to worship and love him with reckless abandon, pursue the lost in the world with the reckless love that we sang about a few minutes ago that Jesus modeled for us. That is the kind of love with which we should pursue everyone who doesn't know Jesus, remembering that Jesus pursued us with that kind of love first. That through that love and sacrificial service, even in the face of opposition, God's kingdom might break forth as beacons of light ever multiplying until Christ's ultimate return. Let me close with the words of 1 Peter chapter 5. verses six through 11, listen to these words. Peter says this, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that you've given us together to sing to you, to pray to you, to hear beautiful truths from your word. I pray that you would continue ministering to us, Holy Spirit, through your word as we go from this place. I pray that if any words that came from my mouth were unhelpful, that you would graciously uh, strike them from all of our memories, that we might only hold fast to you and to what is true. We love you. We pray that you would get the glory in our hearts, that you would invite us to be willing, faithful participants in this ministry to which you've called us this battle to which you've called us, the triumph of good over evil of your kingdom, over the kingdom of this world. We're thankful for you that you have invited us in, that you are inviting us even now to take each of us the next step of faith along this journey of following you. So I pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, enable us till the soil of our hearts, enable us to hear this invitation from you. 
and walk in the fullness of life along the narrow path that you show us. We love you, Lord. Get the glory. In Christ's name, amen.